Good morning, CFC. Um, for anybody who doesn't know me, anybody watching online, my name is Ben Moser. I am the uh, Director of Congregational Worship here at CFC, and I am uh, just really excited and blessed to be able to serve a different role in the service this morning, and I just open up the Word of God with you all this morning. Um, I'm, I'm also a student at Wheaton College. I'm graduating in two months here, studying Bible and theology, um, and I was looking at this week as I was preparing for this sermon I was looking back at my calendar and I realized it's been, this week will be one calendar year since kind of this whole pandemic started for me. I was in Colorado on spring break. I got a call from, from Wheaton saying, hey, we're shutting down. We're shutting down the school. And it was right in the middle of as I was applying to work here. <laughs> so I called Lucas. I was like, hey, they're kicking me out. I was supposed to be coming to lead worship here. And we ended up kind of getting through it. And then I, I was hired here and now it's been one year. What a crazy, crazy year it's been. Um, and now here I am uh, able to, to preach for you guys. So I'm just so thankful uh, for this church and, and the ways that I've been blessed here and thankful for this opportunity this morning. Today we're going to get the chance to think about a little bit about the Lord's judgment. And this is something that I think we actually do a really good job of here at CFC. There are some churches where you might find they don't talk about judgment at all. You know, it's just God's love. We're not going to even think about that. Just don't worry. God loves you. Um, You've got, of course, the opposite in other churches where there's too much judgment, all, much, all judgment, no grace from God. And so I think, again, at CFC we do a great job here of, of striking that balance, not shying away from thinking about God's judgment, uh, but also certainly not shying away from God's great grace that he gives to us. And so we're going to be in uh, the book of Isaiah, and the, the, thing we're gonna be, the, the prophecy of Isaiah we're going to be reading today is an oracle against the nation of Egypt. And as we read about this judgment that God is going to bring upon Egypt, we're going to be able to think how uh, can we respond in the face of trials that God brings into our own lives. Now, I don't want to, I want to be clear here, we're not, we're not equating our judgment with, with Egypt's. Um, we know that if we are in Christ, we are outside of condemnation. Um, we are saved. We don't have to, to fear this, this future judgment that we see is going to come upon Egypt here. Um, but we do also know as Christians that God does bring trials. God does bring us through trials and temptations as he grows us into maturity in our faith. And I think of just two verses kind of to give us some context for that before we dive into the rest of our passage today. I think of Proverbs three eleven and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. We see that God, he does discipline us. We are, we are part his children and he disciplines us because he loves us. We see also, I think of uh, in James, James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." So while we are not under this same judgment that we see uh, Egypt facing today, we do know that God does send trials our way with the intent of helping us to grow, to perfect our faith, to grow in steadfastness. And so we're going to see from the ways that Egypt responds in this chapter 19 of Isaiah how we should in, then respond uh, as we face trials in our own walk with Christ. Like I mentioned, we're in Isaiah, and before we get into the passage, I want to just give us a little, a little context on this book. First, about the book of Isaiah itself. 
Um, This is such a beloved book of the church, especially in the Old Testament. Isaiah is one of the books so many people will go to in the Old Testament. And that's partly because it is the most quoted book in the New Testament. Um, Quoted and alluded to over 600 times in the New Testament is this book of Isaiah. Um, The church fathers, they saw this, they realized this, they called um, the book of Isaiah, they called him the fifth evangelist, this fifth gospel that we find in the Old Testament because we see all of these beautiful passages of God redeeming his people, of God bringing other nations into his people. Um, We see prophecies of a future coming king who's going to reign in peace. We see prophecies of this this suffering servant who's going to suffer for the sins of his people. So we love the book of Isaiah as Christians and as, as we should. It is a a beautiful book, but I think a lot of times we miss what is actually the majority of the book of Isaiah, which is the judgment that God is going to bring. In this book, we see God prophesy judgment against the nation of Judah. We see God prophesy judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel. We see God prophesy judgment against the nations surrounding, and finally, we see him prophesy judgment against the entire world. So again, I think today we're going to have a chance to see both of those aspects in the book of Isaiah, this redemption that we so love to find here but also this judgment that will come. If you, want to, if you aren't already there, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 19. Just a few more things to go over before we, before we dive into the text. Um, there's three things, I think, context-wise you need to know. These are things that you could learn if you were to read the whole book of Isaiah. Um, but since we're jumping into one chapter in the middle of it randomly today on Sunday... I'm going to just go ahead and give you some of those context points that you would have learned having read the book up until this chapter 19. The first thing you need to know that's is going to help us understand these images in this passage. First thing, we need to know about the nation of Egypt. If we're going to be reading a prophecy against them, we need to know at least a little something about them. And I think, man, when you think of Egypt and you think of the Bible, you're thinking of a story that involves Egypt, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? You can shout it out. What story is it? It's the Red Sea. It's the Exodus. It's this time when when Israel was enslaved in Egypt and God brought them out of there. So anytime you're reading Egypt in the prophets, you're going through, you turn, judgment against Egypt, oh man, you have that Exodus story in the back of your mind. You remember this history that Israel has with Egypt, that Egypt is in fact their ancient enemy um, from, from the beginning of when they were a people. We also learn, if you read the book of Isaiah, that the people of Judah, as they are facing oppression during this time, uh, instead of going to God for help, they start scrambling, looking for other nations to try and help to, to save them from this oppression. And Egypt is one of the nations that they turn to. They start to look to Egypt for help. And so we see both before and after this prophecy in the book of Isaiah that Isaiah and God are condemning the people of, of Judah, saying, how could you turn to your enemy, Egypt, when you could turn to me for help in your time of need? So when we read this passage about Egypt, we have those things in the back of our mind. Another thing we need to know about the book of Isaiah for this passage is where we are in the book. The book is actually set up in three parts, and we're in this big first section. It takes up the first half of the book, chapters 1 to 39, and in this section is mostly we find judgment. Some of those suffering servant passages, some of those passages we love are later in the book. In this first part of the book, we see judgment on on God's people and on the nations. And we also see in this first part of the book, the third thing we need to know Before we dive into this passage in chapter 19, we need to know about the nation of Assyria. So, Carl, if you throw this this map up on the screen, that big green area and the purple area up there, all of that is the Assyrian Empire during the time of Isaiah in the 700s BC. That little tiny brown area right down there, that's Judah. So as Isaiah is prophesying, 
to the nation of Judah. We have this going on in the background. This nation of Assyria, they're taking over. They're currently conquering. They're expanding their empire. And look who is right in the way of their expansion to the south. Judah. This tiny little nation. And so we see, as you, if you were to read these first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, we see that, that Isaiah prophesies Assyria is actually going to be used to judge the northern kingdom of Israel. And when you get to the end of these 39 chapters, you see that Assyria actually comes to the doorstep of Jerusalem. They, they are crusading through Judah, and they end up right at Jerusalem before Hezekiah finally goes to the Lord, and the Lord repels the Assyrians. So anytime you're reading a prophecy in this first half of the book of Isaiah, this Assyrian context is also in your mind. You know that as Isaiah is prophesying this, the Assyrians are on the doorstep. The people of Judah are terrified of what the, the, this giant empire of Assyria might do to them. So finally, enough of all that background. We're finally going to get to the text. If you look at Isaiah chapter 19, you're going to find that it is in two halves. There's two sections of this passage. Verses 1 through 15 are the specific judgments that God is going to bring on Egypt. And we're going to focus in on verses 16 to 25, which is how Egypt responds to those judgments. But if you'll read just the very first part of verse 16 for me, it says, In that day, the Egyptians will be, and then it goes on to keep prophesying, in what day? What day are we talking about here? We're talking about the day of judgment that he just prophesied in the first 15 verses. It's in that day that we're going to see how Egypt responds. So I'm just going to give you the, the lightning round, quick version of what is happening in verses 1 through 15. There's three judgments God is going to bring upon Egypt. In verses 1 through 4, we see that God, the Egyptians are going to be in turmoil. He's going to stir them up against each other. And he's ultimately going to turn them over to the hand of a hard master. He's going to set a harsh ruler over them. That's the first thing that God is going to do to Egypt in that day. In that day, God is also, in verses 5 to 10, he's going to dry up the Nile River. This Nile River Delta in the northeastern part of Africa, this is the source of life in that region. It's part of the reason why Egypt is such a great nation in the first place. Their livelihood comes from this Nile River, and God's going to take it away from them. And then finally, in verses 11 to 15, we see that God is going to confuse the council of the Egyptians. They're going to have all these counselors. They're going to be giving conflicting reports. They're going to be confused. There's going to be chaos in the land of Egypt. So that is the situation we find ourselves in today as we look at verse 16. We jump into these five oracles of what's going to happen in that day. How is Egypt going to respond to these three harsh judgments God has given against them? So would you pray with me as we, as we jump into um, our main text for today? God, I thank you for this opportunity you've given us to gather together this morning to come and hear from your word. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts that your word would be piercing, that we would learn from it today, God, and that it would convict us, that your word would be working in our hearts and changing our hearts and minds as we, as we go out of here today. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, so we're just going to dive right in. Like I said, there's five oracles here as we go through. Five things, five ways Egypt is going to respond to these judgments that God has brought. So starting in verse 16, In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. 
So the first thing we see in this day of judgment as, as God is judging Egypt, there's two, two immediate responses they have. The first, we see that the Egyptians will be like women. Now this is a phrase that we probably wouldn't use today. What this phrase is getting at is how women are physically weaker than men. On average, in general, women physically weaker than men. So this great nation of Egypt, who is so strong and mighty in battle, has been made weak before the Lord. They have been brought low. They've been made weak. And we also see, practically, of course, they've been made weak. He dried up the Nile River. That's their source of life. They can't catch fish. They can't water their crops. They don't have work to do. The Nile is gone. So, of course, they're weak. God has made them weak through his judgments. That's the first thing we see from Egypt here. The other thing is that they're afraid. Again, of course they're afraid. If you saw the Nile River drying up, if you were under a harsh master, wouldn't you be afraid? I think I would be afraid. (laughs) But it's more than that. It's not just these things that they're afraid of. They could probably make it through, figure it out, get rid of the harsh master. They could figure out some way to survive. They're not afraid of that stuff. They're afraid because the Lord of hosts has set his purpose against them. And the way we really see this, I mean, this is, this is I'm going to throw this map back up here again. Look again at the size of the nation of Judah. No one on this map is afraid of Judah. No one in the world at this time is going to be afraid of a small, tiny nation like Judah. Certainly not Egypt down here in, in the bottom left. But we see that in this day, at the name of Judah, Egypt is going to be terrified. And we know it can't be because of Judah themselves. They're tiny. It's because the Lord is with Judah. It's because the Lord has set his purpose against them. The Lord is so mighty that he can make a small nation like Judah a terror to a great nation like Egypt. And so we see that our, our first response in the face of trials Egypt's first response in the face of this judgment is to fear the Lord. I'll reiterate again, we are not, if we are in Christ, we are not under condemnation. We don't need to fear that final day of judgment. But we do need to have this healthy fear of the Lord. We know that the the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, it's the beginning of wisdom. We need to remember who God is. He's the God that judges Egypt. He's the God that will judge in the final day. We can't make him smaller than he is. We can't forget that this judgment exists. God is just and he has to judge sin. And we need to be in awe of him. We need to be fearing and respecting who he is. Lucas said in one of his sermons at the beginning of of Numbers, he is not safe. He is a great God. And that's the first thing we do when we see we're facing trials, we're facing things in our life. We know that God is sovereign. We know that God is great and powerful. And we fear, respect, and ultimately worship him. We come to this place of awe before him where we know who he is. He's this great mighty God who will judge. So we keep moving. We want to we find out what happens next. We think, is God just going to completely obliterate the Egyptians? Up until this point, all we've seen is that God is, is against them and they are terrified. We look at the second oracle, starting in verse 18. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. Now, this is probably the hardest oracle out of all of these to really decipher. So we're not going to spend too much time here today trying to figure out exactly what he's talking about. Five cities, are these people from Judah who have gone there? Are these Egyptians? What is the city of destruction? Other manuscripts say city of the sun. We're not going to be able to figure that out in our time today. Um, but we, what we do see in this second oracle is a shift all of a sudden. Up until this point, it's been judgment, 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 three judgments. Egypt, they are, they're weak. They're trembling in fear before the Lord. 
And now all of a sudden we think probably if we just keep going that way, God's just going to wipe them out and be done with them. They're going to be afraid and then they're gone. But all of a sudden in verse 18, there's a shift. There's, there's people in Egypt that are worshiping Yahweh. There's this theme in the book of Isaiah, this speaking words that these people in Egypt that are speaking the language of Canaan, they're worshiping Yahweh. They've, they've sweared their allegiance to Yahweh. What's happening here? Well, all of a sudden there's this tension in the text where we thought, they, oh yeah, God's going to wipe out Egypt. And suddenly there's, there's something more happening here. So we're going to keep reading on to the third oracle. This starts in verse 19. This is the longest one. We're going to spend the most amount of time here. And I'll just go ahead and read it for us. In verse, starting in 19, In that day, that day of judgment, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Hopefully now you can see maybe why I, I chose this passage. If you thought it was a really random prophecy against Egypt on a, on a random Sunday here, you can see now that here, in this, this is the crux of the passage where all of a sudden there's this left turn and God not only judges Egypt, God not only strikes Egypt, but God is going to heal them and redeem them. So let's look at some of these images that Isaiah puts forth here and just see how, how incredible this is that God is going to redeem Egypt. First, in, the, in, the, in verse 19, we see that there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. For some of us who have been in the church, um, we, we are familiar with this altar imagery. It's something we talk about. Um, we see it in a couple different places. We sing the songs, you know, come to the altar. Um, but really what this altar is, it's not something we really have anymore. Um, this is a place of worship. In this, in this ancient Near Eastern world where Israel lives, the altar is where people come to worship. In the same way that we come into this building and sing songs together on Sundays, when, when people in this part of the world worshiped at this time, they go to an altar and they sacrifice. That is worship. So we see that the Egyptians are worshiping here. And as I was thinking about this altar image, the fact that the Egyptians are worshiping at an altar to Yahweh, I couldn't help but think of all of the people before the Egyptians who when they encountered God, when God made himself known to them, they turned, they built an altar, and they worshiped Yahweh. I think of Noah. He gets off the boat. He survived the flood, builds an altar, worships God. I think of Abraham. He's called into the land. God gives him this promise. He builds an altar. He worships God. Jacob, after he escapes from Esau, he builds an altar. He worships God. You have Moses. When he meets God in the wilderness, he builds an altar and he worships God. And then you have a whole string of, of section of the law that's talking about how do we build an altar so that Israel can worship God because he's brought them out of Egypt. We see Joshua build an altar when he enters the land, when God finally brings them to that promised land. All throughout the Bible, when people encounter God, when he shows up and does something in their lives, they turn, they worship, they build an altar, they worship him. So Egypt here, they've encountered God in the form of judgment, sure, not quite bringing them out of captivity yet, but they encounter God, they turn, and they worship him, they build an altar to him. Not only do they build an altar, not only are they worshiping him, we see that there will be a pillar to the Lord at the border of Egypt. This word pillar here, this monument to the Lord, this pillar to the Lord, the other place we see this in the Old Testament is when Jacob, he's escaping from Esau, he, he falls asleep in the wilderness and he has this vision from God 
where he sees a ladder up to heaven and the, and the angels are ascending and descending. And when he wakes up, he says, this, where I'm, this must be the very house of God. And he builds a pillar to the Lord, a monument to say, this is Bethel. This is the house of God. This is the same type of pillar that is now on the border of Egypt. So as you're going down to Egypt, as you're going crossing the border, you see this pillar that says, this is where Yahweh is. This is God's house. This is his land. And it's Egypt. It's not the promised land. It still is the promised land, certainly. But now, as you go down to Egypt, you see, here is God. This is this monument saying, this is God's house in the land of Egypt. And we see how incredible this redemption God is, God is offering to the Egyptians as they turn and they worship him in the midst of his judgment. And we see this truth that when we encounter God, we need to turn and worship him. And we see, obviously, again, throughout the Old Testament, all of those examples of great things God does. Certainly, we usually have an easy time when God does something great in our life, when he blesses us. We're like, yes, we're going to worship God. How often do we worship God when God brings something hard into our life? Do we turn and worship him and thank him for his sovereignty, thank him for bringing us through trials to grow us? I think we can see here that if a, a pagan nation, an enemy of Israel, can, can experience God's judgment and turn and worship him, how much more when we experience the trials that God leads us through in our life should we turn and worship him? In every moment in our life, when we see God working, good or bad, we know he's working for our good and we should turn and worship him. We continue on in this longest third oracle. The second half of verse 20 says that when they cry to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender, and deliver them. And here we're going to bring back in some of that context we talked about in this book. Remember that Judah had gone to Egypt to look for help. They had not cried out to the Lord when they were being oppressed by Assyria. They went to Egypt. And so here, as Isaiah is prophesying against Egypt, he also prophesies a direct judgment on the people of Judah. Look at this pagan nation of Egypt, your ancient enemy, who when they are in trouble, they cry out to the Lord. And what are you doing right now when you are in trouble? Not crying out to the Lord. And it's the same for us. We know even more. We know we have Christ. We know we are in him. We know that he offers us in our times of trial. We know that God ordains these times of trial. And we still don't cry out to him. We run to all kinds of other things. When in that moment, when we're facing whatever that struggle is, whatever that judgment, whatever that trial, we should be crying out to the Lord. A judgment against Judah here and, and also against us as we see that this enemy of Israel knows more than sometimes we even do to cry out to the Lord when, we're in, when we need help. We go on to verse 21. The Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. The Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. They will make vows to the Lord and perform them. Um, again, that context comes back into view here. We remember when we're thinking about Egypt, we've got that exodus in mind. God has already made himself known to the Egyptians. He made himself known to the Egyptians 10 times through these plagues that he brought into them in, in the Exodus story so that he would let the Israelites go. In that instance, they did not turn and worship God when they, when they encountered him. They hardened their hearts. They turned away and God continued to afflict them. But here we see that when, when the Lord makes himself known to the Egyptians, this time they get it right. It's what we already talked about with the altar. They, they turn and they worship him. They turn and they know him in return. And this is also another judgment against Judah who we read in the first chapter of Isaiah that their worship is false. God is tired of their worship because they are not truly worshiping him. They're not keeping their vows to him. And here we see that Egypt is truly worshiping him. They're making vows to him. They're keeping them. They're not saying, God, please get rid of this stuff and we'll stop. 
you know, we'll be good. And then once God is gone, they keep going to their old ways. No, they make vows. They keep them. They have turned to the Lord. They are worshiping him. Finally, verse 22, the end of this, this middle biggest oracle. This is really the, the, the crux of the story. This is where we're going to learn how God works through judgment. He says that in verse 22, the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord. He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Just in case we forgot that, that God was going to judge Egypt, he strikes Egypt. He has to. It's what we learned right at the beginning of this as we think about judgment. God can't let sins go unpunished. God has to judge. But as he judges, as he strikes, he's not vindictive. It's not wanton destruction. He has a purpose in his judgment. He doesn't want, he loves Egypt. He doesn't want them to just be destroyed. He wants them to see the error of their ways, turn to him so that he can heal them. When God strikes, he has a purpose of healing. We see, again, this beautiful truth here tucked away in the middle of this prophecy against Egypt in the middle of Isaiah, this truth that we see so many places in the Bible that God works through judgment. It's through judgment that God works out his salvation. And we see this most clearly, most ultimately in Jesus Christ. Jesus had to be struck so that we could be healed. You can't have one without the other. There is judgment for our sins. But God struck Jesus. He took away our judgment, put it on him so that we could be healed. We see this is, it's not new. It's that God didn't come up with it with Jesus. This is how God has always worked. It's through judgment. He's just, he has to judge, but he doesn't, he wants us to come to him in that. He wants to heal us. He uses judgments, trials to heal us. And what does this cause us to do? It causes us to worship him. Just like the Egyptians did, they cried out to him, he saved them. They made their vows, they kept him. We worship God because we know, again, how much more do we know? We know that we are saved, that God has struck. He struck Jesus and not us and we are healed. And we now worship him for that. We could really just end it right there. That's great. I think uh, if, as you're reading along, you get to that section, you're like, oh, good. He saved, his, he saved Egypt. What a twist. That's great. But Isaiah keeps going. There's more. It's more than just striking healing. In this healing that God is working out, there's more to it than just taking away the oppression, than just you know, getting the Nile back going again. There's more to it than that. There's more that God offers in this healing. In verse 23, we've, we've made it to the fourth oracle. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Now, if we didn't have the context of the book of Isaiah, we might wonder, where did the Assyrians come from here? But we know, we know the context that's happening here. Judah is terrified of the, the Assyrians. The Assyrians are the biggest world player right now as Isaiah is prophesying. So I'm going to put the map up again. Here's the map. Think about a highway running between Egypt and Assyria. You'll notice that runs directly through Judah. And we'll get to them in a second. We'll see what happens to them in the fifth oracle. But for now, I want to focus in on this image of this highway between Assyria and Egypt and what, what Isaiah is saying here. This is a crazy image to the, to the uh, Israelites. Look at how they're surrounded by people. And if, again, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see this. All throughout, all around them, throughout their history, there's conflict, there's violence, there's different empires, different nations constantly attacking them on all sides. They are in a, just, a, just by the nature of where they are, it's just so many people surrounding them, so much violence happening in this land. They have not experienced 
peace in their land hardly ever. Maybe during the time of Solomon, they had, they had peace for a little while. But they have not experienced peace in this land. And this image that Isaiah gives us here in the fourth oracle in verse 23 is an image of world peace. It's one that we can probably barely understand because we aren't in a context like this. But these people, the, the people of Judah listening, they're hearing that the Assyrians, the people who are currently attacking them, Egypt, their enemies, also an enemy of the Assyrians, they're going to be friends. Not only are they going to be friends, they're going to build a highway and they're going to worship together. This is an image of extreme peace. All of a sudden, finally, in this final day of judgment, Israel has peace. There's no, no longer people attacking them on all sides. Everyone around them, uh, there, there's this highway and they're worshiping together. Remember who Egypt's worshiping? That's what we've been talking about this whole time. Egypt's now worshiping Yahweh, which means Assyria's now worshiping Yahweh. There's this incredible future day where all of these nations all together are worshiping Yahweh and there's finally peace. And this is another truth that we know well as Christians that after God strikes Jesus as he heals us, we have the opportunity to have peace in him, peace that surpasses our understanding. We have that in Christ. When God strikes and heals, he brings peace. And not only that, as we experience trials, remember that verse in James, the steadfastness, he gives us more peace through trials. As we experience trials, as we go through that, when we come out on the other side, we have more peace. God wants to give us peace through this healing, through this striking. And again, we could probably end there too. Great, healing peace, but Isaiah manages to get one more, one even more great thing that happens when God strikes and God heals. We see in the final oracle, verses 24 to 25. In that day, Israel will be the third, with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Can you imagine being somebody in Judah and hearing, hearing this prophecy from Isaiah about Egypt being God's people? Like, wait a minute, we're God's people. What are you talking about? Not Egypt. And then Assyria, even worse, Assyria, the people who are attacking us right now, they can't be the work of your hands. We're the work of your hands, God. And again, tucked away in this passage in the middle of Isaiah, this judgment on Egypt, we see this truth that God brings people into his family, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And through this striking, through this healing, God brings people into his family. And it's more than just a, a family. It's, a, it's this covenant family that God has promised to Israel. This, this language that's used here in, in, verse, in these verses, this language of blessing, calls back to this Abrahamic covenant given to Abraham in Genesis 17 so long ago that God would make him a great nation, that God would give him land, and that God would make him a blessing to other nations. We see this promise being fulfilled here in this striking and healing. Israel is now the third with Egypt and Assyria. They've been made a great nation. They're no longer a tiny little nation stuck in between big ones. They're a third great nation in the midst of the earth. And all three of these nations are blessing the nations around them. They are fulfilling this covenant duty of the family of God to bless that this promise that, that was promised to Abraham so long ago. Stunning. It's incredible. Imagine being in Judah and hearing this, this image of peace, not only peace, that other people are going to be in this family, this covenant that was made to you. God has opened it up. He, through his striking, through his healing, he brings people into his family. And again, ultimately, we see this in the work of Jesus. We know that when Jesus was struck on the cross, when we were healed, through this, this death and resurrection of Jesus, that we are brought into the covenant family of God. We now have this peace in him, and we are now a part of the family, and nothing can take us away from him. 
because we have been brought into his family through this striking and through this healing. So we, we made it to the end here. We made it through all five oracles. And we see that after all of this, as Egypt has been judged harshly, through it all, they learn to worship the Lord. And in this striking and healing, God brings them peace. God brings them into his family. For us, as we, as we go through our lives, as we, we know that God is in control, we know that he brings these trials into our lives, we can learn so much from, from the response of this pagan nation to God. We first learn that we have to fear God. We, got, we can't lose sight of who he is. He is this great and mighty God. And that leads us to worship him. We also know that God will encounter us. He will bring blessings into our life. He will also bring trials into our life. And in those things, we worship him. We know that this beautiful truth that God works through judgment. God works salvation through judgment. It's part of his plan. He strikes and he heals. So we worship him for that. We know that as we are in the midst of trials, we can worship because God is working it out for our good, for our healing. We know that as he's working that out, we have the opportunity to have peace in him. This striking, this healing brings us peace. We know we have that peace in Christ. And finally, we know that we are in his covenant family. We have been saved through the striking and healing of Jesus that we are now part of his family and free to worship him. He has blessed us and now we are free to bless others around us. When we persevere in these trials, when we worship God in the midst of the worst things going on in our life, we are a blessing to the people around us. When they wonder how we are so joyful and so worshipful in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of things going on, we can say, look, it's because of Christ. We can share the gospel with them. We can bless them through the striking. We can bless. The way we worship with our lives will bless others around us. We will have peace, and it is through these these trials that God, that God heals and we can worship him in all of it. So would you pray with me? God, I thank you for this incredible passage tucked away in the middle of Isaiah, in the middle of all this judgment that you in fact are working through judgment. That as you strike nations, you desire to heal them. That as you heal them, you bring them peace, that you that you set them up as a blessing in the midst of the earth, God. I pray that as we go out of here today, that we would be worshiping you. That as we see you at work in our lives, as we see trials, as we see blessings in every moment of our lives, that we would be worshiping you, God. That we would know that it is through these trials that you bring healing, that you bring peace. And through this, as we worship you, that you will make us a blessing to all that are around us, God. We thank you for your word and for how you continue to work through striking and healing. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.